Well, I see we're a minute over. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, enlighten our hearts and minds that we might rejoice in the salvation you have given us, rejoice in the future and the inheritance that you have laid out before us and that you have promised to us in Christ Jesus, all for free. Comfort and reassure us, cleanse our hearts and our minds that we may rest and rejoice in the victory of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ and thus become zealous students of your word, zealous students of the teachings of St. Paul, that in this brief and difficult struggle we have here in this life, we may be as faithful as we can be. We may fight as good soldiers of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, we had gotten basically all the way through You can tell by verse 1 that we are on a new topic, and this is food offered to idols. Again, I commend to you the study note in your Lutheran study Bible, uh, chapters 8 through 10, because this is a very important thing to keep in mind. Otherwise, you're going to You might fall into the ditch of of seeing some contradiction or apparent contradiction between what Paul's going to say in chapter 10, verse what he says here in 8. Again, this food was eaten in a temple dining room. That's one. Uh, Two, um, at sacrifices involving actual idol worship. Purchased in the marketplace. Eaten in an unbeliever's home. So there are these four different instances in which one can find himself being offered food that was sacrificed uh, to idols. And here in chapter 8, we're looking specifically at a temple dining room. That's that's specifically what's in view here. Um, The rest is going to pertain to chapter 10. So those of you who just came in, we're at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I was just reintroducing it. Um, eight is uh, its its own the beginning of its own unit. Now, as we went through all of this, uh, a couple of things to point out. One is the role of conscience, and that's important an important thing for us to consider in general. It's a very uh, common focus for Saint Paul's theology. We see this arise in verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge, namely that there's one God and whatever is offered to an idol is nothing because God gives it, God sanctifies it. We don't have to fear that. But not all possess this knowledge. That's the problem. And you might have to stretch your imagination a little, but if you imagine someone who grew up eating the sacrifices at a pagan temple their whole life, and maybe they're in their 30s or their 40s, they've completely turned away from that idolatrous lifestyle. It makes them sick to their stomach. And their conscience, though, not rightly formed, not not strengthened and formed in God's word, is is weak. And they can't they can't that knowledge that this is nothing, they have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. They just can't. Or rather even wrapping their conscience around it. Even if they can wrap their minds around it intellectually, the conscience is still defiled by it. So that's the kind of phenomenon Paul is expressing here in verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge that food offered to idols is nothing, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, So that's a reality of a conscience that is malformed or is weak. So we can talk very generally about a conscience. A conscience is first written into all people by God. And it's one of the chief proofs that there is a creator to whom we are accountable. And our own conscience accuses us and excuses us. That's why all human beings are without excuse before God, even if they don't have the Ten Commandments that tell them expressly what God's will is. They have their own conscience alerting them to the fact that they're a sinner and that they stand guilty and accountable before God. So that's baseline role of the conscience, even in the life of an unbeliever. 
Now, a conscience that is in accord with the natural law, in accord with the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God revealed therein, is a rightly formed conscience. And a rightly formed conscience knows what is sin and what is not sin and reacts accordingly. But an ill-formed conscience may feel guilty where it shouldn't. Or may feel no compunction whatsoever, no guilt whatsoever, when it should. Those are two, <coughs> excuse me, two different maladies of the conscience. <coughs> uh, an overly sensitive conscience is sometimes called a, a scrupulous or, or even the spiritual illness of scrupulosity. This idea of I, I sinned in all these ways, the conscience says I, I've sinned in all these ways when in fact you haven't. That, as a matter of some historic import, is in all likelihood what Philip Melanchthon suffered from, scrupulosity. And he was writing to Luther, and this is the the locus of Luther's famous sin boldly statement that's taken out of context. In the first place, is he really saying sin boldly, or is he saying, why don't you violate your conscience that is overwrought and calling things sin that aren't sin? Why don't you trample that and trust the grace of God and then let your conscience be formed in accordance with God's word? And then what we see in our day and age, though, is, is usually the opposite of scrupulosity. That's a conscience that's been deadened and dulled and hardened, seared, so that it's unfeeling. Where the conscience should be screaming out, this is horrific, the conscience is silent. And I think this even affects us as Christians in this land in very in ways that will astonish us when, when we're on the other side. You know, we're we're living in a in a world that slaughters babies and castrates children, and you know, we're like that meme of the dog with the room on fire saying, "This is fine." Uh, our, you know, our conscience isn't appalled. If you, if you kind of did the thought experiment of what would your great-grandfather think if he suddenly, like, through time warp appeared, you'd probably say, where's your musket? It's time to get busy. <laughs> uh, but we have, like, the proverbial frog in the pot just slowly, slowly uh, acquiesced and and again, where the conscience is rightly functioning, I've mentioned this in another class, you can see this in children, the, just the revulsion to the stuff that adults find um, acceptable and or even uh, commendable, glorying in their shame, as that line from St. Paul's epistle from uh, this, this last Sunday. Uh, little children naturally find it abhorrent, and it's through a long process of the dulling of the conscience and the desensitization of the conscience that we come to think of well, I don't want to be rude to homosexuals. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. We need to return and we need to let our consciences heal to the point of that some of the evil things that are done are simply unspeakable. They should be horrific, horrifying, abhorrent, repulsive to our conscience, repulsive to our very being. Does that mean that the grace of God is somehow compromised? No. Grace of God extends to all who repent including the most vile of all sinners. That's, that's a given. That's a non-negotiable. But that's in no way to contrast the fact that we should find vile, abhorrent, uh, hateful um, certain sins. And certain sins evoke that. Certain sins are so much worse than other sins. They, it, there's something wrong with us if they don't evoke a zealous and passionate response to the contrary. So um, in our culture, then, conscience is, is most frequently not tilted toward the scrupulous, finding sins where there aren't any, although you can see examples of that, too, obviously. Um, I hate to pick on progressivism all the time, but it's really just the disease of our age, and it's a false religion. But progressivism is constantly creating sins that aren't sins. You know, if you don't... If you don't eat free-range chicken, you're committing culinary harlotry. You know, it's kind of if you don't drive a, if you don't get your carbon footprint down, then you're a bad person. You're liable to the hell of fire. So, constant 
invention of, of new sins. That's a kind of scrupulosity when you view it from the angle of the conscience, the conscience being malformed to a different ethic. It's being malformed to where it's calling good what God doesn't call good, and it's calling evil what God doesn't call evil. See how that's a malforming? But by and large, again, I just can't help but see the, the elephant in the room is the deadening of the conscience of the West. That seems to be the biggest so particularly those things that God and God's people would have uh, seen as just horrific and abominable, we now, you know, hardly bat an eye. Okay, so the conscience then, what we find here is that it's a kind of, it's, it's like an organ. The conscience can be strengthened as it's formed to God's law and to the natural law, or it can be weakened um, as it derivates from this on one side or the other. It's about as simple as I can try to make it. Does that make some sense? So here you have a conscience that is uh, scrupulous, overly scrupulous. In That's the, the nature of the weakness here in verse 7. Because of their former association with idols, they... They can't extricate from their minds this reality that, that the food is just food given by God and an idol is nothing. But instead, they eat food as, as if it were really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, so just again to zoom in on this concept of uh, conscience a little bit more, if we jump forward to verse 10... For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. So what's going on is he can't really, his conscience needs time to be reformed to the word of God, so it's weak. But you being there is encouraging him to be there, and he's knowingly and eating, he's violating his conscience, he's damaging his conscience like an organ. And that's, that's the idea of a conscience, is even when the conscience is wrong, is wrongly formed, you don't want to trample it, because if you trample it, the conscience itself is just an organ. It's, it, it can't distinguish it, all it can distinguish is when it's being damaged or trampled. It's like, it's like your lungs. This is the analogy I always use. Your lungs them have no consciousness. They, they don't know the difference between oxygen and, let's say, uh, a pack of cigarettes a day. Okay. But when, if you choose a pack of cigarettes a day, that's going to affect and weaken your lungs and their capacity to function. So in the same way a conscience is an organ... Um, if it's abused, it doesn't know if it's being rightly formed, wrongly formed. It just knows it's being abused. It's just, it just knows it's being told to shut up when it's wagging its finger. And the problem with that is, is it's, not, it's not able to distinguish. So then when you come along and say something that is according to God's law, like, hey, don't fornicate, or hey, don't steal from your brother, or hey, don't tell lies about your brother, or bear false witness, the conscience goes, well, I, I've already been slammed down, you know. Um, the conscience is dead towards those other things. So a conscience, even when it's wrongly formed, can't be trampled. That's one of the principles here. And that's one of the principles in play in verse 10, where he's saying, look, if his conscience is weak, then by your knowledge you're destroying your brother because he's enticed to eat by your example and to participate with you, but he thinks he's sinning, and so his whole conscience is defiled, his whole faith is shipwrecked, Everything is made a mess um, by you and your quote-unquote knowledge, by you and your quote-unquote freedom. That's going to come up in chapter 9, verse 1. Um, one more in this section reference to conscience is in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. All right, and maybe that, let me pause and see if you have anything you, you'd like to add or maybe, maybe some insights you have, questions you have about conscience in general. Otherwise, we'll pivot to the, to the second major point from this, which is the question of adiaphora. We'll spend just a little more time there uh, before we, we move on in advance. Please. This might be related to adiaphora, but uh, 
the subject of music and contemporary music. And I think of it as being like music offered to idols and pop cultural idols. And so I think I would be one whose conscience is tortured by that. And so any kind of reference to pop culture, I don't want it. I don't want a video screen behind it, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't want any of that out there. And I feel like that might that might be me. That might be almost, maybe I'm overly scrupulous. I don't know, but I I feel like yeah, I just don't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated topic, the idea of music and um you know, I think I think too where there's no clear demarcation. So you get music that um, maybe it's bumping in the club or uh, playing at the bar or wherever, and then you go on Sunday morning, it's the same style of music, and it's conjuring up that same kind of feeling and imagery. You know there's something wrong, but you don't want to say you're, you know, you don't want to be a legalist, so you keep quiet. There is something wrong with that. There is something. Now, this, this gets us into the question we're going to. Inherently wrong with the music? No circumstantially wrong with the music? Yes, that's an easy case to make. Now, sometimes it's obviously inherently wrong. I mean, I don't, don't know the last time I've listened to a rap song where I've been like, yeah, there's a, clearly this is a sinless rap song. Uh, sex, drugs, and violence. Um, but I've been informed recently that it's no longer that trifecta. Now it's just basically all money. It's just I've got money and you don't. That's basically what rap music is boiled down to. So, yeah, a lot could be said there, but, but sort of this idea of, well, what's the world listening to? That's how our worship should be. I can hardly think of something more wrongheaded. Uh, that, that is liable to uh, defile consciences. I mean, I, we had a contemporary service um, back here a while ago, and as far as they go, it, was, it wasn't half bad. But during the, the Sanctus was played to a tune that was eerily reminiscent of Pink Floyd. And I had some experience with Pink Floyd back in my undergraduate days. And every time the Sanctus would rev up with Pink Floyd-esque music, in my mind I'm fighting this battle of, no, I'm not at the University of Colorado on a Saturday night. I'm in the holiest of holies here trying to focus on Christ and that kind of... Uh, that kind of capitulation to culture is not healthy or helpful, uh, creating that battle in people's minds. So, of course, um, not to dive too, down, too far down the rabbit hole on this, but Charles Finney and the so-called Second Great Awakening is really what changed all of this in the West. So, prior to that time, Worship was universally seen in the West. What you do on Sunday morning was universally seen as the West, is you're coming into the presence of the Almighty, and you're there for Him and Him for you. And I mean you, plural. And it's just acknowledged that it's a holy, reverent occasion. What Charles Finney does, and then what's built upon Charles Finney and his work uh, throughout, thorough going through Methodism, and then later on, most recent to us is the church growth movement or missionalism. It's this idea that worship is no longer about coming into the numinous presence, the otherworldly, holy, unspeakable presence of Almighty God, but worship is for the unbeliever. And so worship is now transformed to be evangelism. And it's transformed not to worship God, but to worship and appeal to the unbeliever or the visitor that he might come in. And then you have the shift. Then the dam breaks open. Everything changes direction and the levee bursts. And all of worship is now designed to appeal to the lowest-minded of people that might stumble into your sanctuary. So, hey, let's get out the coffee. Let's, um, where's God? Oh, he's everywhere, man, and nowhere, man. And then the ultimate, the ultimate kind of end of this is, well, why even, why even meet at all? So you'll have Saddleback Church at times not having, and other mega churches, not having service on Easter Sunday. I mean, I, like, 
Pardon me if I'm deafened by the sound of a million Christians' bones as they turn over in their graves that you wouldn't meet on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Why? Well, because we can take a Sunday off from evangelism and we can just go out and serve people. Completely gone is the idea that man was created for God and God for man in this holy exchange called worship. We're not even into the theology of worship at this point. We're just at that, at that very simple reality. So Christian worship in our age has by and large been entirely transformed into evangelism. And then it's just, hey, what makes the visitor more comfortable? Change the music, change the holiness, get rid of the crucifix, it's off-putting, put up the drum set. What are they familiar with? TED Talks, do that for your sermon. Um, what are they familiar with? Uh, popular music, do that. What do they like more than anything? Comedians, be that. And you've got the transformation of the church from Charles Finney forward. And all of this is presented now as like missional and for Christ and for winning souls. It's not. It's a satanic sleight of hand where worship has turned from us oriented toward God um, and that that's, we can evangelize all we want. There's a lot more hours in the week where you can go evangelize. There's uh, an entire six other days in the week where you can go out and become all things to all people. But there in that space, you're inviting people and you're saying, you're coming into the presence of the Holy One. You conform to Him, not Him to you. So that is a subtle but profound shift that's taken place and um, has really uh, been extremely damaging. And this is where the two things tie together, because what is the nature of, of uh, worship? What is the nature of the, the lyrics that are used or the tunes that are used or the style of the worship? Isn't it all, technically speaking, adiaphora? Adiaphora is a Latin word. It comes right from the Greek. It's just a transliteration of the Greek. And it comes that way to us just into English. And adiaphora means indifferent things or things neither commanded nor forbidden. And I'd assert, I'd make the assertion here that a misunderstanding of adiaphora and the devil's abuse of this category has been cataclysmic to the church in the West. Because as soon as we say, well, it's adiaphora, God doesn't command that you use an organ. God doesn't command that you use vestments or paraments. Okay, so it's free, so we can do whatever we want. And then Charles Finney or the Methodists or the church growthers come and go, hey, well, since it's all free, you can't, con- you, you can't condemn us or you can't say anything against us lest you be a legalist forbidding where God doesn't forbid or commanding where God doesn't command. So anything goes. Anything goes. And the church, by and large, has not had the wherewithal, particularly the clergy should be blamed and the theologians should be blamed for not having the wherewithal nor the testicular fortitude to say, If something isn't inherently sinful, it is indeed adiaphora, but adiaphora can most certainly become circumstantially sinful. Now, I know that that might strike you as a, as a subtle or difficult set of categories there, but it's essential, and you're going to see it right here. So the argument in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians Verse 1, I'm, I'm generalizing. Verse 1 through 9, or especially verse 1 through 6, is that eating meat offered to idols isn't inherently sinful. It's not inherently sinful. You can eat and not sin at all. But it becomes circumstantially sinful. And that's what we see, again, beginning around verse 10. I'm not trying to be too precise here, where he says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
So you sin against your brother and against Christ by doing something that isn't inherently sinful. You see, so these two categories flow right out of the text of Holy Writ, right out of St. Paul. And what's going on here with the eating of food, we could just as easily apply to music or any number of other things in the church. The church for a long, uh, for a long time here in the West has simply said, well, is it inherently sinful or not? No? Then go for it. And that is not biblical. That is going to lead to a sinful trampling of consciences and a distortion of the Christian faith. And I pointed this out a little bit last week, but it's why the church that universally upholds, upholds the freedom of the gospel in Christ Jesus and upholds the, the concept of adiaphora, whether it be in church councils of old or whether it be in the book of Concord, where they'll talk about the, the freedom to worship in various forms. Um, all of these things then, uh, well, freedom to worship in various forms and those same authors write church orders that say you will worship in this region in these ways. The church has always upheld the freedom of the gospel and the concept of adiaphora, but then has said, contextually, this is what that looks like. So it's a real libertine and lawless spirit that's come upon us in the West, where it's like, okay, God doesn't say, then anything goes. Yes, sir? But it also leads to, you see it in the modern Evangelical churches is what it leads to by that loosness is it leads to them questioning whether Lutherans and Catholics are actually Christians. Mm-hmm. I've seen it all the time. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it creates a divide because you've allowed this loosey goosey whatever goes, do your worship the way that you feel right. And what it leads to is them actually questioning because we do rights that are very traditional, we do things by what's very scriptural, we start questioning whether we're Christians, which divides the church, mm-hmm. which is exactly what is, you know, that's exactly what we that would be, right? Yeah. You use that freedom to allow them to start saying, you're not a Christian because you're a Lutheran, you believe this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. So it does lead to that piece. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Um, we, we do have some uh, young budding theologians in the room. Uh, and so it would, it would be good for me to mention that if you want to get this right from the pen of Luther, uh, in his American edition, volume 53, he has, uh, what's, what's kept there for us is his letter to the Livonians. And in it, he asserts this, this Pauline principle specific to worship, but he articulates it in this way. So this is Luther's way of thinking on the matter. I think it's great. I think it perfectly harmonizes with St. Paul's thinking on the matter. He says, sure, when it comes to worship in relation to God, you know, vertically, you're free. But in relation to that, so in matters of faith, you're free. But when it comes to your neighbor, when it comes to that horizontal, when it comes to matters of love, you're bound. And Luther himself says right off the bat that we ought to sacrifice whatever freedoms we have in order to unite as Christendom and worship the same way. So free before God, sure, you're absolutely free to have a sermon or not have a sermon, have the Lord's Supper or not have the Lord's Supper. Uh, God doesn't lay any command or burden upon the church. But then when it comes to how we're actually going to do this, we're completely bound to one another. and We need to come together and say, this is the way we're going to do it. So again, I, we're off on this tangent a little bit on worship, but it's, it's an utterly important one. And it's really destroyed the church from the inside out. But a lot of this whole letting, letting this whole thing go, this whole uh, cancer spread unchecked, has led to all kinds of unintended consequences, like competition between churches and division between churches, competition, division between pastors, and whoever's got the hottest, newest worship, whoever's the church of what's happening now, and everybody's vying to be the church of what's happening now. And it's it's even kind of this sinful temptation we have as Lutherans to be like, well, uh, we'll, we'll participate in that. We've just got something better. You know, we've got something that kind of has smells and bells, but you know, even that's a kind of compromised argument. We're just presenting an alternative to the error. We're not really actually stating a theology of worship. 
And so you've got this, this kind of division that's happened throughout the LCMS, but throughout all the conservative church bodies in America or whatever remains of them. I, you could argue that there are no conservative, in the proper sense of that word, church bodies left anymore in America. Part of this is, uh, uh, you know, again, we've talked about super intelligences. It's not like there's a, a group of uh, people wearing... Um, you know, demonic costumes sitting in St. Louis plotting all of this out. Uh, but this is the work of superintelligences, demons, saying, how do we undermine and destroy the church? And it's very easy. Um, so the devil knows the scriptures and church history better than we do, especially better than most of our leaders do. And the way that this has gone down, so you might have heard the phrase lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief or the law of faith. And the way that was initially articulated by Prosper of Aquitaine is lex orandi, statuate lex credendi. That is to say, how one prays, how one worships, will ultimately determine how one believes. Now, we as Lutherans are quick to jump in there and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, and we need to do this quickly. The word, what we believe, forms our worship. That's absolutely true, and that's a good critique. But then, if we don't allow that word to dictate how we worship, and we let other ideas of how we worship get in, then what happens is the next generation So this is the argument against Lutheran substance evangelical style. Because you go, I know Lutheranism inside and out. I can safely rock out and worship like a Baptist on uh, Sunday mornings and retain my Lutheranism. Lex credendi, the law of my faith, statuette, Lex Arandi, I can sort of say, hey, my, my faith will carry me through Lutheran substance evangelical style. But guess who that doesn't apply to? <coughs> your children. Because your children take in that worship before they pick up a single treatise by Luther or Walther or Pieper. They're already worshiping, thinking this is what's right. So, Functionally speaking, practically speaking, lex orandi, the law of prayer, how you worship will end up forming how you believe. That's the, that's the real issue. So are we, are we regaining ground as a unified liturgical church centered on, of course we're not. Because, I mean, we can hope and pray that the pendulum swings back, but it will take an act of cultural and ecclesiastical rebellion because we have been inoculate, or we have been inoculating uh, generations of children now, um, and many of whom are adults in the church, against any traditional worship forms, by simply saying, "Hey, you can worship this and still like this and still be a Lutheran." Guess what? They largely don't. They leave for where it's done better, which are the big box churches. Or they try to transform what remains of the Lutheran churches into. Happy, clappy, big box churches, because they say, hey, you guys are still clinging to these old remnants. Let's get rid of that altogether. And so what you really have then is a very ingenious, multi-generational plan by the superintelligences to denude the church of its worship and identity by exploiting the concept of Adiaphora. Yes, sir. How about the kids that say, I've seen this other form of worship, which is more akin to historic Lutheran worship. Mm-hmm. And they say, I like Eastern Orthodox Church, or I like the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Because the worship is reverent, and they're worshiping God. Exactly. That's what we're doing here. Exactly. And that is exactly the pitfall we've fallen into. Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox do have compelling aesthetics. So imagine this. The Lutherans at the time of the Book of Concord could write that we conduct the Mass, the divine service, 
with greater reverence and piety than any of our opponents. That is to say, one of the Lutherans' boasts was, we have better aesthetics, better, truer, more biblical, more holy worship experience than our opponents. Can we, can we make that boast anymore? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And that's to our detriment. That's why uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is growing faster than any other quote-unquote denomination, because they have the aesthetics. They have the sense of the numinous, the other, the holy, which is so much <coughs> lacking in our culture. Where, what holy spaces are there in our culture? There are none. Even, even the places that we, we had previously you know, accorded some reverence, that's all disappearing. Uh, have you ever seen old-fashioned photos of people traveling by train? And then when the airlines began, how they, yeah. Why? You're, tra- you're traveling. Anything can happen when you're traveling. It's dangerous. It's deadly. It's a public face. You should be dressed up. The best. It's a numinous. It's an other. It's a, trans- it's a transitioning kind of reality. And so you dress the part. Um, it used to be this way in courtrooms. Something major is going on. Some, there's something numinous is going on. Now, now courtrooms can barely uphold that. Uh, decorum. Um, it used to be this way at graduations. It used to be this way with ceremonies. One of the places you can still find it, ironically, is weddings. People do at least recognize that, you know, you can take the most like rock and roll, wild, uh, big box Christian couple, and then all of a sudden when it comes to planning their wedding, they want it all traditional. And they want all this ceremony and aesthetic. Why? There's an innate recognition that that stuff is becoming of the significance of the event. So also culturally, when we denuded of rever- when we denude worship in the presence of God of, of any reverence, and we, tr- we try as hard as we can for decades, we've tried as hard as we can to, oh, no, 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 this place is just like your living room. We want you to be more comfortable here than in your own living room. What we've actually done is destroyed any reason for why they'd actually want to be there. Then why wouldn't I just be in my living room? And in fact, that's one of the dangers of online services. Now I can be. And I can pause you or fast forward you whenever I like. <laughs> Go get some popcorn too while I'm at it. Um, all, all of this is, the, is just furthering the disease of our culture. Um, whereas, whereas the one thing that we're called to awaken people to is the reality of God's presence and the reality that something magnificent and wonderful and otherworldly is happening here. We dress the part, we look the part, we act the part. Um, we demand that our clergy dress strangely because this is a strange thing that's happening. We demand that um, the, the chancel look, you know, that's the front of the church, that it look like a holy place because something holy is happening. We demand that it look beautiful because heaven is beautiful and God is beautiful. We demand that it embrace all the senses because God created the senses and they're all good. And also, lo and behold, when you look at Old Testament worship, when you look at the New Testament worship of the first few centuries in particular, but really going all the way through uh, the, up, up until the Second Great Awakening, you get some denigration in the Reformation with the radical reformers and the icon- iconoclasm. Also, when you peer into heaven, though, when you get glimpses into heaven, in um, the apocalyptic texts of the scriptures. What do you see in heaven? See a bunch of angels sitting around strumming ukuleles, sipping lattes? Hey, God, what's up, man? Uh, It's never what you see. Never, ever, ever what you see. So why have we duped ourselves into thinking that that's how it ought to be here? It's wild. It's wild. So, um, again, this is all hidden under the cloak of Adiaphora because these things are not commanded nor forbidden. They're not inherently sinful. It's not inherently sinful uh, to have guitars or um, to dress a certain way or another, but it can be circumstantially sinful. And that's the point with eating eating food sacrificed to idols where a brother, it's going to do damage to him. And it it is very clearly the case when it comes to the church's worship, uh, when we choose instead of loving one another and conforming our worship so that it's uniform and holy and identifiable and right and distinct from culture, 
We just acquiesce and give way to culture. By the, the story of, of the church in America for the last uh, 150, 200 years is the story of attempting to convert the world so hard that we end up being converted to the world ourselves. So we're going to get into that when Paul says, I became all things to all people, and we'll have some fun there. Because Paul doesn't say, I become an unbeliever myself. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, just to complicate things here, if, I mean, I don't want to do this, but it's just something that, um, I mean, I really actually would rather not, but it's something that troubles me because we take box music, mm-hmm. which we would generally say, like, that's the best of Lutheran culture, right? And so Bach is taking a Lutheran, a, a, a hymn written by Luther, and Luther used popular forms of the day. He was interested in popular music of the day, and even taking popular tunes and then rewriting the words to them, right? So he's, Luther's not against popular culture per se. And so the Bach's taking that, and then he's adding new contemporary forms of the day, like Italian arias and these things. And so that they were using, so, okay, so that complicates things. Well, okay, so popular culture at that time was very different. Than popular there you go. Now. That's the so key. That's the circumstantial thing. That's the key. That's exactly where it's circumstantial. So if we lived in a culture that was predominantly Christian, we had Christian rulers, everyone was trying to be Christian, uh, and the popular music isn't uh, sex, drugs, violence, and I've got more money than you, uh, or, or shake it, shake it, whatever. I mean, that's all the pop stuff is. It's just, I'm shaking it, you're shaking it, we're all shaking it. And then it's just every single song. Uh, if that's popular culture, you have to stand opposed to popular culture. But if popular culture is we believe in God and what we're doing Monday through Saturday is glorifying God. And when I sit down at my organ or I sit down with my orchestra, or I sit down with my paintbrush or I sit down with my, uh, architectural designs for, um, the, the local school, I am doing everything to glorify God. That's an entirely different culture, isn't it? It's where you have scientists going, my base assumption is that there's a God and I'm going to uncover the truths that he's and the mysteries that he's written. And science feels vastly different, doesn't it? So in a culture like that, of course, of course, that's the culture we wish we had because we'd be building cathedrals and we'd be having Bach round two with modern instrumentation. And that's all, that's all wonderful. But where you have a, um, an entire culture that's devoid of God and contrary to God, then you want to embrace those forms. Now you've got a real issue. So it is absolutely contextual. Um, it, is, it is often misunderstood, too, that Luther, so you'll hear this uh, from time to time, especially around the Reformation. A Reformation came and went, and I didn't hear this old canard. I should be thankful. Uh, but that Luther used bar tunes. Okay? And by that, it, the American mind goes, tavern tunes. So like Luther was yucking it up, you know, prost and cheering it up. And it's like, oh, that's a catchy tune. Let's use it on Sunday morning. That's not what bar tunes are. <coughs> bar tunes are a specific musical notation that is easier to sing, easier to vocalize, and easier to remember. Luther is using that notation to like the bar, the musical bar. That's what he's using, not tavern tunes. <laughs> So you kind of get this idea too. You get all, all kinds of false ideas. How did Luther, how did Luther dress? Now I hear it's, it's a little contextual because he's in, uh, Germany, which has real winters. Um, I know we all had to brave the Southern California winter to get here tonight, but they've got real winters. So it is a little contextual. But when you look and see how Luther dressed, you wouldn't believe it. He'd immediately be accused as being a papist legalist. Uh, by way of how he how he dressed to conduct mass on a Sunday morning, because it was the full regalia. I mean, it, it would make what we do here look low church and lowbrow. And and so you have to understand too that there a lot of this a lot of this trying to use Luther and and certain statements out of context like a waxen nose is in the first place deceitful and in the second place distortive because uh, Luther himself would have been the highest of high church Lutherans if he just showed, he just zap Luther on a Sunday morning mass into our church and he'd think it was unrecognizable 
and he would be dressed in a way that would make everyone uncomfortable. So it is apples and oranges there, but this claim of the Lutheran confessions that we worship, that our worship, our our celebration of the Mass is done with more reverence and awe than that of our opponents, that's the goal to get back to that, to regain the ascetics. I mean, I fully, I fully say the East does have the ascetics. They don't have the theology we have. We should have the ascetics to match our theology. And indeed, we had it. <laughs> we just let it go. But look at the churches that were built in the 19th century in Lutheranism. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. Look at St. John's locally. Beautiful, wonderful. I mean, now they got the screens up and all the nonsense. It's like cancer on it. But um, you can... But, yeah, once upon a time, that was us, and it wasn't that long ago. Did I see it? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, you just mentioned something about Old Testament worship, and to me, the specifications, God had his hands on the steering wheel. He was down to the inch. This is the shape, the size, and what its purpose is, and all this. And, uh, and Jesus said to the woman at the well, now we, we will worship in spirit and in truth. Was that the transition to go to the church to worship me in a different way without these? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there is a huge transition that takes place there and an, and an ontological transition that takes place that the temple to which God is calling all people is no longer a place in Jerusalem that looks this way with these specified things. Now Christ is that temple. And the gospel goes out into all the nations, and the nature of the temple changes. There's a lot more flexibility and fluidity. But what, but there are principles that remain the same that are articulated in the Old and New Testament. Um, Hebrews talks about this, the reverence of worship. So again, you, you might, you might see this too. This is, I think this is a remarkable thing. You'll see Lutherans in Africa. You can YouTube some of this. And they're using bongos and voices, and um, by our standards, they're not dressed up, but by their standards, they are. And the music is beautiful and reverent and a distinct step away from their culture. That's it. That's the threshold. The, the threshold isn't you have to roll into a, in an organ, a pipe organ, to every place in the world. The threshold isn't that you have to worship by this specific uh you know, liturgical setting, that's not the point. The point is that as Christ goes out into the world, he transforms it, and there's a recognition that um, the God who reigns over heaven and earth is present there with us. His Son is present there with us. And so whatever reverence looks like in that culture, that's what it ought to be. You see? So the principle remains the same, even though the specific form we're not bound to. Nobody cares that they were, I mean, in the, in the early church, nobody cares that the worship looks slightly different from uh, this part of the world to that part of the world. Nobody ever cares about that. It is a problem if one's worship, if you all confess the same thing and say we're all on the same page and we all believe the same thing, but worship is starkly different 10 miles away from each other. Why? Well, it creates competition, creates disunity, Creates people going, you know, I kind of like the style of that other one better than this one. I think I'm going to go there. Uh, so we should, um, if we all were simply bound to the same kinds of worship forms, the way the Lutherans articulated it in their church orders. Hey, in this region, this is what it's going to look like. Top down, this is what it's going to look like. Um, that's great. And if it looks different there than it, uh, than it does 100 miles away, it'll look different by degree. But the same principles are in place. A recognition of what's going on. Whatever you're doing confesses the, that Christ is present where two or three are gathered in his name, and there he is, and, and he's doing his thing. So reverence is something to be aspired to in that regard, um, as opposed to, I mean, what, what are we trying to do? Make it as irreverent as possible? Make, make the, the threshold between us and culture as, as diminished as possible? That's been the project for some decades, and it's been disastrous for the church. Numerically disastrous. Look at, look at the decline of Christendom. Who's going to make the argument that we've been doing things right? Who's going to make the argument that we've been doing things in a God-pleasing way? Yes, sir. 
the uh, I had when I many years ago, probably at least ten years ago, I was part of a focus group at a Lutheran church in Orange County. It may have been mentioned, but um, so. I didn't know any better. You know, I grew up Catholic, and I just kind of thought it was very trendy, right? I just kind of thought Protestant churches were kind of trendy and mm-hmm. doing that. I just thought it was normal, and it was seemed well attended to me. But this focus group, every, and I'm not supposed to tell anybody because oh, I can't. Everybody was concerned because there were no, like, people in their 20s at, at this church. They said they'd just leave us, you know, mm-hmm. and... and they couldn't figure it out, but it was very kind of like, you know, it was like a businessy type of focus group. Even I'm like, I feel like my work, you know, it was just mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. it just kind of struck me as odd. And I didn't really know any better at the time, but I think it's like what you're talking about. You know, they tried to be real trendy, then everybody kind of left. <laughs> the, the younger people all kind of left. I don't know where they went, but it, I, I just kind of assumed it was a healthy place until that. And all these people voiced concerns about, you know, the, the messages and stuff like that are just kind of eye-opening. Really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that that deserves its own uh, hour by itself. The the corporatization of the church, where everything beca- everything from our architecture to our nomenclature. I, I mean, I, I'll probably get in trouble. Well, no, they probably won't get me in trouble for this. They don't care enough, which is indicting. <laughs> but I'll say it anyway. I, I just got a missive from our district, and I, I had to read it three or four times because I couldn't understand what the heck they were saying because it's so couched in corporate jargon. We're we're going to empower people toward missionalism, and we're going to and just the complete loss of our tradition. We're going to have gatherers and shepherds and elders. Shepherds and elders is distinct. It's no such thing biblically. Do you, by shepherds and elders do you mean pastors? Because that's what the New Testament means. But the way you're writing it doesn't mean that at all. We're going to have this program to embrace and lean into culture and galvanize our effort. You know, it's just like what, what are you saying? I, I can't even comprehend what you're saying. It, it, not only is it not recognizably Lutheran, it's not recognizably Christian. No, nobody talks like this in the history of the church. And now we're convinced we're going to save Christendom in the West by embracing corporate America? Ah, it's just, it's wild to me. Um, but that's, yeah, that's sadly where we're at. Um, and, it, and it's not that I'm not nitpicking the LCMS. This is everything. And largely, in fact, if you want to really lay the blame... Uh, the blame should be laid at Vatican II with the Roman Catholics in the West. Uh, there, Vatican II is the, is the real beginning of universal embrace of the tenets of worship and the lowbrow, everything that we have right now. So obviously Finney's the one that gets it started. <coughs> but up until Vatican II, look at what worship looked like in your average LCMS congregation versus look at what it looks like now. So any any time we can blame the Roman Catholics, let's do that. <laughs> it's teasing, but you know, but it's it's both it's both a compliment and a backhanded compliment because everybody follows everybody follows Rome in one way or another. Where did the three year lectionary come from? Vatican II. Where did uh, women readers come from and uh, lay readers come from? Vatican II. All kinds of nonsense and havoc. Um, what about clown masses and jazz masses? Have you seen some of these? I want to become a Roman Catholic because they're monolithic and they've got all of this right. Hmm. Well, I want to Google that. They've probably got bigger problems than the LCMS. Uh, clown masses, jazz masses, uh, nature-worshipping masses. They've got it all. You can go find it all on YouTube. Uh, it's a disaster. Prior to Vatican II, there wasn't any of that nonsense. Vatican II opened the door to all that nonsense by saying we need to enculturate the gospel or change the gospel to fit the culture. Um, wasn't that uh, article recently, some of the statements of uh, so-called Pope, uh, what's his name, Francis, uh, keeps doing this, hey, uh, we, need to, we need to, I mean, he couches it in this jargon, but it's we need to change our theology to fit culture. That's just what he keeps doing. And that's, and when Rome does that, all the people in Protestantism who like, you know, say they hate Rome, but go, Oh, those are the, those, that's the big church. Those are the big guys. They all take notes and they all go, we're going to do the same thing. All right. Well, maybe enough on that. Um, to zoom all the way out, the key category we want to have in our minds based on, uh, first Corinthians eight is that we need to, First of all, ask whether something is inherently sinful or not. 
Obviously, if it's inherently sinful, we can ixnay it. Just because we say, no, it's not inherently sinful, we do, our next step isn't, go for it. Our next step is, is it contextually sinful? That's exactly what's articulated here in verse 11. Um, it is contextually sinful in some circumstances to eat food offered to idols if it's destroying the conscience and the faith of our fellow brothers. We sin against them, and as Paul says, we sin against Christ. And this is the perfect curtailing of freedom that Luther's talking about, where he says, before God we're free, before one another we're not. Look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And stumble here is the scandalize, the scandalizo word um, for fall away from the faith. Commit a mortal sin. So I, I am free in regards to faith, in regards to God, in regards to the verticality of my faith to eat here, but I am bound to my brother, and thus I will curtail my freedom for the sake of love and bind my freedom and not exercise my freedom for the sake of the well-being of my brother. Um, that's essentially the nature of the worship discussion as Luther picks it up in his letter to the Livonians, and it's Paul's argument. And this is a thoroughgoing category that we have to acknowledge. Just because something's adiaphora doesn't mean it doesn't become sinful. So uh, Walther, uh, the founder of the LCMS, will flat out say in regards to worship, like, um, the, we can't, we sh- our churches should not use anything that is remotely heterodox or comes from the heterodox because it's going to mislead people. Because if it's got our imprimatur on it, they're going to say, well, if this is good, everything must be good. Go for it. And unfortunately, I think we can even see uh, a a distinct departure from uh, Walther as we continue to amend our synodical bylaws to go completely contrary to what he said, and even reflected in our hymnals, where you look at the diversity of, of our, hymn, our hymnody and our authors of the hymnody and our authors of theology and who we employ to teach us theology via our publishing house, and you can go, the church of Walther would be unrecognizable to Walther. What was the heterodox? Um, the heterodox, so, so um, Walther says, hey, you know, in theory, could you, I'm paraphrasing, in theory, could you worship in the style of evangelicals, broadly speaking? Uh, well, you're free. There's no commandment from God that says you shouldn't. But why, why then, um, if we engage in that, now is that a problem? Because it can mislead people in our pews to think, well, if it's okay, then what's it matter if I just become? So there's a, there's a Latin phrase um, in a state of confession, in statu confessionis. And so that's the formal realization that that which God has left free is no longer free to me on the basis of the circumstances. So Luther says we shouldn't use the worship of American evangelicalism of, of what's going on in his day in the 19th century, uh, let alone what's going on in our day, the 20th and 21st. We should not use those things. We should recognize we're in a state of a, a state of confession against these things, because if we embrace them, um, we're going to mislead our people. We're going to mislead our people into thinking there's no real difference between Lutheranism and evangelicalism. Okay, so what about then this quote unquote gospel freedom? Well, it's not a freedom from the law. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, It's also not a freedom to do as we please, even when something's permissible according to the law. And that's the the transition between 13 and uh, 8.13 and 9.1. There really shouldn't be a chapter break here. Am I not free? See what he's doing rhetorically? Can I not eat wherever I want to eat? I have the knowledge. I know the objective truth. Am I not free? Furthermore, am I not an apostle? Don't I have uh, the highest level of authority within the church? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, in fact, he says to the Corinthian congregation, my work, my workmanship in the Lord, the product of my own hands. If to others I am not an apostle, now that gives us a little hint of what's going on there, that some, everywhere Paul goes, people are accusing him of not being a true apostle. Why? Because he wasn't one of the original 12 
So they're always trying to badmouth him. He says, look, if, if I'm not an apostle to some, at least I am to you. You are the sphragus, the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And now what he's going to go on to say, and this is going to pertain to the ministry. I see we're out of time here. So next, next week, we're going to go into the, the nature of the ministry and this question of freedom. But already you can see this is my apologia. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the uh, authority? It's translated as right, which can be the whole translation of, of a, a right in our American culture is really questionable. But be that as it may, I'll try not to be too hostile to it. Do we not have the authority or the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the authority, this is the exousian word, the authority or right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no authority or no right to refrain from working for a living? So he's going to give us a whole bunch of concrete examples where he and his apostolic ministry sets aside the freedom that has been given him in God's word for the sake of the people in front of him. That makes sense? All right, so we'll delve into that next week, and that will um, give us many more examples of where even if we're free in the gospel to do these things not contrary to the law, we should curtail our freedom for the sake of the task at hand doesn't make us legalists. It doesn't make us cowards. It doesn't make us afraid of the freedom of the gospel. It makes us thoroughly apostolic and Christian in our theology. Let's close them with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.